0: Welcome back to the second part of the New Arab Voices Review of 2023. Last week, we looked at the biggest stories from the Middle East in the first six months of the year. This week, we're looking at the final six months of the year, which were equally eventful and tumultuous. Again, we've been joined by the New Arab's finest journalists, correspondents and editors to guide us through. My name is Hugo Goodrich and you're listening the new Arab voice. We ended our last episode with the month of June and an electoral victory for Turkey's President Erdogan, who secured another term in office. This week we're starting on the border between Turkey and Syria which was the subject of intense discussions at the UN Security Council. The new Arab's Levant correspondent, Will Christou,
1: record aid talks and arguments in New York. But essentially, it came to a head in July. Um, now, it's a little bit complicated, but Syria... Typically, when the UN wants to send aid into a country, it has to get the consent of the government. Now, the Syrian regime, the Syrian government... Um, has been a party to the conflict and one of the the tools it's used throughout the syrian civil war is the weaponization of aid you know politicizing where aid goes and violating the principle of neutrality when it comes to the distribution of aid so in order to combat this in order to um, be able to give aid to opposition held areas of, of syria without the consent of the government the un security council adopted something called the whole of syria approach which allowed um aid actors to send aid into Syria from different border crossings into the country without the consent of the government. This started with four border crossings from Jordan, Iraq, and two from Turkey. And gradually, due to Russian vetoes uh, in the UN Security Councils, it was vetoed to, it was whittled down to one um, border crossing. And in July, Russia vetoed the resolution in the UN Security Council to further authorize the use of the last remaining border crossing for another year. So what happened is the Syrian regime then responded by offering the UN the ability to access the country with its consent, if it coordinated with Damascus in aid delivery. All agree. The proposed way forward announced by the Syrian regime on July 13 is not a workable substitute. Let me repeat that, it is not a workable substitute. This immediately prompted a backlash from the aid community, who again was cautious of the, U- uh, the, the the regime's history of weaponizing aid. So the UN rejected the deal, and eventually after long negotiations, the UN and the regime came to an agreement to allow the UN to import aid via uh, two border crossings from Turkey for three months at a time. Now, this is no longer occurring through the UN Security Council, but rather an agreement between the UN and the regime, which is tenuous at best, given that one, it depends on the consent of the regime, and two, is given in three-month approval periods. In the past, it used to be six months to a year.
0: Um, Moving across, just over the border to Lebanon, in July, Lebanon said goodbye to uh, one of the country's uh, titans and uh, simultaneously one of its curses. What happened,
1: Will? That's right. Uh, In July, Riyad Salameh, who was the governor of Lebanon's central bank for three decades, left his post. And he left with a bit of a tarnished legacy.
0: Uh, For those who who might have forgotten his illustrious career, why don't you just remind the listeners who Riyad Salameh was?
1: Yeah, Riyad Salameh was once considered a hero of the Lebanese economy. He wrote a book, He uh, went to lots of award ceremonies and um, considered a financial mastermind until he became Lebanon's nightmare. Um, He took control of the central bank after the civil war and managed to get the country, financially speaking, on more solid ground, or so it appeared. And for a while, Lebanon retained uh, under his tenure the moniker of the Switzerland of the Middle East for its advanced banking sector. Uh, But... In 2019, um, after a crisis of confidence in the banks, it became clear that actually uh, Riyad Saddam was a bit of a financial wizard, but not in the way that people thought, because he had been running a massive Ponzi scheme for the last three decades, which led to a run on the banks and the complete collapse of Lebanon's financial sector in the fall of 2019, wiping out the savings of millions of Lebanese citizens. And until today, Lebanon is primarily a cash-based economy, with you know a ruinous financial uh, meltdown, um, with no way out, and most of this has been attributed to his tenure as central bank governor.
0: We've covered the dire situation that the, uh, the Lebanese economy is in on a, on a couple of episodes. You can go back and listen to them now. Um, Over 2023, did did the economic situation improve at all in in the country? Uh,
1: Yes, and then no. So Lebanon's economy is in serious need of economic reform. Um, After the collapse of its banking system, it became very apparent that um, there was massive corruption in the economy, and uh, the IMF listed five pillars that needed to be addressed in terms of economic reforms before the country could access much needed financial aid from the international community that was in 2019 and since then the country's parliament has not adopted a single one of the pillars and that hasn't even gotten close despite this lebanon has come to a sort of equilibrium the economy is still bad for most of the country but um, the country has kind of come back on the map and in the summer of 20 is in this summer, summer of 2023, um, Lebanon's tourism sector started to recover in earnest and lots of tourists started to come and the com- the country had some of the, one of the biggest influxes of visitors since its, um, financial meltdown in 2019. So it was a, it was a good year until October 8th, October 8th, Uh, Hezbollah and Israel started fighting on the border um, after Hezbollah launched a rocket in solidarity with um, Hamas's attack on southern Israel on October 7th, the day earlier. Since then, there have been continual and worsening um, border clashes and exchanges of rocket fire in south Lebanon and northern Israel, which has essentially destroyed the tourist sector in Lebanon and Israel. deprived it of a much-needed source of dollars.
0: The Middle East and North Africa have not been overflowing with good news in 2023, but there were moments. New Arab journalist Oliver Mizzi told us of one good moment.
2: Uh, obviously, uh, everyone was very pleased to hear about the release of Patrick Zaki on July 19th.
3: Patrick, would you have respect this day before? Patrick, Patrick. Patrick, this way. Patrick, thank
0: you. Just say hi. For those who have forgotten, Oliver,
2: remind us who is Patrick. So Patrick George Zaki is an Egyptian postgraduate student who studied at the University of Bologna and he was arrested by the Egyptian authorities at Cairo Airport on February 7th, 2020. He had recently returned from a trip to Italy where he had been visiting his family and during his Interrogation: Zaki was questioned about his work for the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, which is a human rights organisation. At the time of his arrest, his lawyers reported that Zaki had been blindfolded and handcuffed throughout his 17-hour interrogation, first at the airport and then at an undisclosed location. Uh, further, he was allegedly subjected to beatings and electrical shocks. It was later announced that he was being held for disseminating false news, in quotation marks, and inciting to protest. Uh, Charges that stem from an article that he wrote about the plight of Egypt's Coptic Christian minority, which he belongs to. He was released at the end of 2021, but the charges weren't dropped. Uh, He eventually went to trial this year and uh, he was sentenced to three years in prison, uh, but he was pardoned by President Sisi and released uh, the next day. Um you know, President
0: Sisi isn't uh, famed for his uh, compassion, particularly uh, you know, particularly when it comes to human rights activists. Um so you know why was Patrick why was Patrick released then?
2: Well, there's two main reasons really. Um the first is uh, sort of cost benefit analysis uh from the Egyptian regime. Um Patrick's actually an Italian citizen, uh and there was a lot of in- uh, intense uh, international pressure for him to be released. Um, so, frankly, holding him was probably too much of a hassle for the regime. Uh, and the second thing is that uh, it was likely related, to, or his release was likely related to uh, the so-called uh, national dialogue that is uh, that was happening in Egypt. The national dialogue, explain. Uh, yeah, this was set up by the president uh, as a sort of outreach scheme, uh, basically to hear people or hear from the people of Egypt and try to understand the uh, the problems that they're having with the country, uh, you know, the manner in which they're being governed, and there were lots of issues around, you know, political parties, electoral laws, uh, municipal elections, human rights, and economic issues as well. That all sounds pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it does sound good, but uh, there's uh, intense skepticism about both the manner in which the dialogue was being conducted, and also the people involved in the seriousness of the regime to listen and actually implement any changes. Uh, for example, uh, as, many, uh, as part of the dialogue, uh, they released a number of political prisoners, um, but they also then re-arrested uh, hundreds more at the same time. Um, and if we are talking about repression, this hasn't really stopped in Egypt either. Um, during the run-up to the presidential election, which is currently ongoing, Um, Many supporters of uh, opposition uh, candidate Ahmed Tantawi um, were actually arrested um, during his uh, campaign, and he eventually withdrew.
0: Tragedy struck Iraq in September, which highlighted some of the country's deep-rooted problems. The new Arab's Iraq correspondent, Dana Garib, remembered that day.
3: Uh, On uh, what was uh, supposed to be a happy day, a very sad story. At a wedding in northern Iraq, uh, 120 people were killed when a fire broke broke out. Uh, The cause of the fire was uh, determined to be fireworks that were set off inside the wedding hall. At least uh, uh, 415 people were injured in the blaze, which also killed the entire families, including children. The fire happened in uh, in Hamdaniya. Uh, town, which is uh, pro- uh, approximately a Christian town, uh, at the after the fire, Iraqi Prime Minister Mohamed Shah sudani declared three days of uh, mourning.
0: Why was the death toll so high from the fire?
3: Uh, yeah, it was a mixture of negligence and uh, corruption. Uh, the presence of uh, flammable uh, panels had uh, to have exacerbated the blaze. Uh, leading to parts of the ceiling collapsing down uh, all the wedding guests. Uh, Iraqi officials also pointed out that uh, the hall had been uh, constructed illegally and without proper licenses, uh, highlighting rampant corruption by the state uh, officials. Uh, there was also far too many people in the wedding hall. It had capacity for uh, no more than 400 people, but there were in uh, excess uh, of uh, 900 people in attendance.
0: And was anybody held responsible for this tragedy?
3: Yeah, uh, intense public anger forced the authorities to act. Uh, five officials, including the town's Maya and a fire chief, uh, were all sacked. Additionally, 14 people were arrested, including the owner of the wedding hall and nine other members of the venue staff according to a statement uh, from the Iraqi uh, Interior ministry.
0: Also in September, Syrians stood up again with the
1: same message many have been crying for over a decade. Will Chris do again? You know, Hugo, the normalization of Assad started this year in part because people said, "Okay, despite us maybe not wanting Assad to be here anymore, he's won the Syrian civil war, it's time to turn the page and realize that we need to accept him and deal with him now the people of syria had something else to say and in september in the southern syrian pro- province of sweda massive protests erupted these were spurred by economic um, economic woes and particularly um, the rising cost of fuel and other basic supplies the government decided to hike the price of fuel and tens of thousands of people took to the streets in what were the largest protests seen for a number of years in syria
0: And, and what were the nature of the protests?
1: Yeah, so I mean, these were peaceful protests, chanting slogans. Uh, we saw women played a huge role in the in the in, in the the protests um, and they were at first focused on the economy um but then became quite political in in nature and started calling for the downfall of the regime and for a democratic transition in Syria sort of returning to the revolutionary roots of the 2011 um, protest movement.
0: The Middle East and North Africa were changed by many of the events in the first nine months of 2023. But of course, it was that fateful day at the start of October that fundamentally changed everything. It started in Israel. The new Arab's West Bank correspondent, Qasem Wadi, takes us back.
4: Well, yes, uh, without a doubt, this is, uh, this is so far the, the most important uh, event for Israel this year. Um, and the 7th of October news of the attack uh, first broke in the morning. It started around 6.30 a.m. Simultaneously, Hamas did something which is um, uh, unprecedented in, in, in the history of this, of this conflict, uh, uh, Hamas began to fire a barrage of rockets. According to them, they fired more than 5,000 rockets in like something like 40 minutes uh, from Gaza. Uh, and they attacked posts on the border uh, and broke through the fence and entered Israel. Some uh, uh, Hamas uh, fighters also uh, flew into Israel across the border using uh, paragliders and uh, and they also attempted to assault by sea. Basically what they were attacking was some, something like 15 military bases and some 21-22 kibbutzim, so um, uh, agricultural Israeli communities that are also based for uh, a civil defense force and they were actually taking on, uh, head on, the uh, Gaza division in the Israeli army. So it was completely unprecedented, as I said, and Israel was caught completely by surprise. News from the attack came throughout the day. Um, um, I personally remember that the first thing I, I, I saw was uh, Al-Qassam fighters from the Hamas military wing um, in Sderot with, and, and pretty calmed down. They, they weren't like under any pressure. They're just walking around Sderot. And it was completely surreal. Like no one believed that this was actually happening. And then um, there were reports of attacks on towns and, and villages. So these kibbutzim, like Sderot, like Be'eri, like um, uh, like Far'am and Far'aza, and of course uh, the, the the the now now famous uh, music uh, supernova electronic music festival. Quite quickly, there were reports of people being killed, especially um, uh, uh, civilians. First, it was a couple of dozen, then, then around 100, and then it, it, it kept going up. Um, even while the attack was continuing, Israeli political and military leaders were announcing that they were at war. So Netanyahu went on television and said, we are at war. And by the end of the first day, October 7, there were reported um, 200 Israelis being killed, civilians and military uh, personnel. But in the days that followed, the number would... Later, be revised, you know, to up to one hundred and and, and uh, one thousand four hundred civilians and soldiers killed. Later, Israel lowered the number of victims down to twelve hundred. After two hundred were found to be Palestinian Hamas militants who were killed during the attack, it also soon became apparent that hundreds of Israelis had been captured during the attack and taken back to Gaza. The first images of the of these captives were actually the Israeli soldiers. Some of them pulled out of. Uh, war tanks or taken from military bases but then as more Palestinians began to cross not only just Hamas militants like every Palestinian who just uh, uh, could grab an Israeli and put them on the back of a motorcycle and drove them back to, to Gaza so the majority of these Israeli captives were taken by Hamas fighters of course but many especially elderly and minors were taken by regular Palestinians who just broke through the fence after the initial attack. And later, it was known that the number was uh, uh, something around 200 to 240 and 50.
0: This was obviously a massive intelligence failing, as well as being a a tragedy for Israel. How did the Israeli public react to, to this intelligence failing? Well, it was a
4: complete shock. Uh, the public never expected this to happen, um, but equally, they never expected the military and intelligence services to be caught by surprise by this. And uh, since the attack, much of the blame has fallen on Benjamin Netanyahu personally, putting his political future at risk. Um, polls in the country suggest that uh, that there is a strong desire to to see him leave. The criticism of Netanyahu and the security services increased after Israeli police revealed that many of the victims um, uh, on the day of 7 uh, of October were killed actually by the indiscriminate fire of Israeli forces during the, the chaotic uh, counter-attack um, with little intelligence. Basically, they were just shooting any, anything that moved near near the border fence. And um, one of the most pressing issues now in the Israeli public opinion since the 7th of October is the fate of Israeli hostages or captives in Gaza. Their families and supporters now have been demonstrating uh, repeatedly and by the thousands, demanding the government to give priority to their release rather than to the bombing of you know of, of Gaza or, or the demilitaries of the Gol- uh, of the war. Um, which increases the risk of the captives' lives. Hamas has already announced that uh, dozens of Israeli captives have been killed by Israeli airstrikes, and this just increases the, the, the protests by, by the by their families and their, and their supporters. Israel's failure to release the captives by force, two months on, uh, are increasing now the demands in Israel to negotiate a new release deal with Hamas similar to the first uh, uh, prisoners exchange that was agreed uh, as part of the first humanitarian ceasefire about three weeks ago.
0: The events of October 7th were a horrific crime and a disaster for the country. The events in Gaza after the 7th and to this day are also a horrific crime. ...and another disaster. New Arab journalist Louay Fowl.
5: Yes, um, well, between the pogroms in Hawara... ...and all the violence in the West Bank... ...at the end of February and the start of October... ...life in Palestine continued in a depressingly standard fashion. The Israeli army continued to conduct numerous raids... ...across the West Bank. Some of the worst the West Bank has seen... ...especially in cities like Um killing and injuring and arresting hundreds of Palestinians. Um, we've seen this in other years, although the number of incursions was much higher than any previous years, uh, probably due to the far-right nature of the Israeli government that was formed at the end of last year um, and then basically vowing to um, increase raids in the area and um, 2023 was particularly notable for the rise in settler attacks, not just Hawara, but as I've said, across the whole occupied West Bank. In the first six months of 2023, there were at least 590 settler attacks recorded. Of course, everything changed with October, with the start of the Gaza war. Uh, As I'm sure you and everyone listening knows, the news coming from Gaza has been ceaseless, just as the Israeli airstrikes and bombardments have been.
0: Yeah, we've uh, we've covered uh, the violence in Gaza on numerous episodes of this podcast. You can listen to all of them now, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, perhaps today, uh, Louie, you can just sort of bring us perhaps up to date with where we are now with the uh, with the violence in Gaza and the Israeli assault.
5: So to date, and according to Gaza's um, health ministry figures. More than 18,600 people have been killed in Israel's unprecedented bombardment of the Gaza Strip, most of them civilians, and these include thousands of children. Uh, Thousands more are buried beneath the rubble, also presumed dead. Um, There are also more than 50,000 injuries, with so many unable to receive any treatment as hospitals shut down across the Gaza Strip and run out of Uh, medical supplies. We've even heard of wounded civilians undergoing surgery without anesthetic even. Um, Also, the vast majority of Gaza's population, which is about 2.3 million, have been forced to leave their homes. Uh, Tens of thousands um, of these housing units have either been damaged or completely destroyed. Um, today, the Israeli army is attacking uh, Khan Yunis, which is the Gaza Strip's second largest city, situated in the south of the territory. And There's no indication that they're going to stop. So the fighting is um, happening in Gaza City, in Jabalia, and in Khan Yunis, of course, while Israel continues to um, reign Gaza with airstrikes. Uh, we did have a truce in the last week of November. That truce was mediated by Qatar, by the U.S., and by Egypt but prospects for a repeat of that are looking slimmer by the day. Uh, In an an effort to stop the violence, uh, the UN Security General did use his diplomatic tools to get the UN Security Council to vote on a ceasefire in Gaza, but this was vetoed by Israel's biggest ally, the US. And, um, I mean, the United Nations General Assembly they overwhelmingly back a non-binding resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. But being non-binding, Israel can ignore and just violate any sort of agreement that the international community may reach.
0: With the start of the conflict in Gaza, fears rapidly grew that the violence would spill into a larger regional conflict. And subsequently, all eyes looked to Tehran. Danakarib again. Uh,
3: when the war did start between Israel and Hamas, there was genuine concern that it would uh, spiral into a wider conflict between uh, Israel and Iran, also Hezbollah, who are backed by Iran. Again, this hasn't happened yet. Uh, it still might, but uh, there don't seem to be clear signs that it will. So so far during the conflict, Iran has been condemning Israeli actions but have yet to play an active role in any fighting or visible support for Hamas or Hezbollah's forces in southern Lebanon, which was to be uh, expected.
0: As Gaza was being rocked by bombardments, Iraq was dealing with its own political shock.
3: Uh, Iraq's top court on uh, November 14th uh, revoked the parliamentary membership of Iraq's uh, parliament uh, former speaker, Mohammed Al-Halbousi. On charge of uh, forgery. Uh, the Supreme Federal Court's decision followed a legal action uh, initiated by uh, uh, Laith Abdullaimi, another uh, Sunni parliamentarian, who accused uh, Al-Halbusi uh, of uh, forging his uh, uh, uh, parliamentary resignation letter. Al-Halbusi uh, uh, is also the leader of uh, the Takadum Progress Party the latter Sunni bloc in parliament. Uh, the court uh, decided to terminate the memberships of uh, the, the, the former uh, Speaker of Parliament and also uh, MP Aldoulaymi. The toco also ruled out that the decision would be put into practice immediately, bound to all authorities and not subject to uh, appeal. Halpusi has described the ruling as weird and stated that uh, he would take measures to safeguard his uh, constitutional rights. Uh, and also, uh, dependent Iraqi lawmaker Bassem Al-Khashan uh, has also filed extra charges against uh, Halbousi, uh, accusing him of attempting to normalize ties with Israel after the former speaker signed uh, a contract with the BGR, U.S. lobbying group uh, that includes former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. As a senior
0: advisor. At the end of November, delegates from around the world descended on Dubai for the annual climate conference. New Arab Deputy Editor Benjamin Ashraf.
6: Yeah, it was, um, yeah it's an interesting decision, um, especially given their status as oil producers. And so, you know, the UAE was a, was a controversial choice to host the annual climate change conference or COP. Um and it angered climate activists when they when it was announced that Sultan al Jaber, who serves as the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, would be the president designate of the talks. Also, the event was um was dogged by further controversy when it was reported the UAE planned to exploit meetings with foreign governments um due to its COP28 hosting role um to actually strike fossil fuel deals. So um. Yeah, it it was most definitely a controversial choice, and and leaked talking points included a meeting with China that said that the UAE state oil company was willing to jointly evaluate international LNG, which is liquefied natural gas opportunities in Mozambique, Canada, and Australia. Um. And finally, the briefing notes meeting for prepared for Colombia, Germany, and Egypt suggested that UAE state oil company. in in quotes, stands ready to support each country to develop fossil fuel projects.
1: We have travelled a long road together in a short amount of time. Over the last two weeks, we have worked very hard to secure a better future for our people and our planet. We should be proud of our historic achievement.
0: The conference ended uh, recently, uh, beginning in December. Um, Do we know if anything was actually achieved? You know, is the climate all fixed now?
6: Uh, Hugo, unfortunately, they haven't fixed climate change. Um, But, yeah, some agreements were made um, on the final day of the conference. Representatives from nearly 200 countries agreed to begin reducing global consumption of fossil fuels to, averse, uh, to avert the worst of climate change. It's worth noting this is a first of its kind deal, and if implemented, would signal the eventual end of the oil age. But Hugo, it's worth noting again that as is often the way with these things, much of the negotiation came down to wording. On the one hand, you had around 100 countries who wanted the agreement to call for a phase out of oil, gas, and coal. But all producing groups like OPEC, uh, led by Saudi Arabia, were firmly against a phase-out and wanted instead a big reduction without a complete stop. So, yes, once again, it's in, it's in the wording. Um, and the agreement also calls for a tripling of renewable energy capacity globally by 2030, um, speeding up efforts to reduce coal use and accelerating technologies such as carbon capture and storage that can clean up clean up hard to decarbonize industries. So I guess to sum up, it's all good in principle, but, it, but it'll be up to the individual nations to actually implement the necessary changes um, and, and meet the aims of, of, of the conference.
0: 2023 has been undeniably busy for the Middle East and North Africa. But time relentlessly marches forward. So what can we expect over the next 12 months? Starting with Shahla Omar
7: and Turkey. So firstly, Turkey's economy has been on the mend this year and it looks like this will continue. Since his re-election, Erdogan and his government have been moving away from reckless economic policies like cutting interest rates while inflation was spiralling. New Finance Minister Mehmet Simsek said Turkey's economy would be, quote-unquote, returning to rational ground. Mm. More sensible policies include significant hikes in interest rates to help tame inflation. There are municipal elections in Turkey in March, and Erdogan will want the AKP to take Istanbul and Ankara back from the CHP, the main opposition party. Mm. Erdogan and the AKP see Istanbul Mayor Ekrem İmamoglu as a challenge to his rule. Um, but opposition groups are looking a bit fragmented right now and the AKP could capitalise on that. Erdogan was somewhat flip-floppy on what his policy towards Syrian refugees would be if he was re-elected. He's spoken for years of moving some of the Syrian refugees to the north of Syria um, and said that Turkey would set up housing in these areas, but not much seems to have happened on this front since the vote. So something else to watch out for is that Ties between Israel and Turkey have been warming up considerably in recent years, culminating in the restoration of diplomatic ties between the two countries in January. Um, Turkey's initial response to Israel's onslaught on Gaza had been somewhat subdued, despite vocal opposition from the public. But their criticism has been growing louder as the death toll and devastation in Gaza has grown, and Turkey last month withdrew their envoy from Israel. So it'll be interesting to see if this will deal a permanent blow to this short-lived period of open and good relations between the two countries.
0: Dana with Iraq and Iran.
3: I think the next year will, will be very difficult for Iraq. Uh, with the start of the new year, we might see chaos and turmoil following the announcement uh, of re- results of the provincial uh, councils. Also, although Muqtada al-Sadr, uh, leader of the Sadrist movement, has called on his supporters to preserve order during the voting process, but he might change his mind and uh, question the legitimacy of the elections as uh, uh, his movement has boycotted it. The expected turmoil might even lead to uh, a deep crisis uh, in Iraq and even regime change in the country. Uh, the main challenges for uh, the Iranian government are uh, maintaining political stability and uh, stabilizing the dire economic situation, uh, especially uh, the very high inflation rate. Iran is uh, set to hold elections for the 290-seat parliament on March 1st, uh, 2024. So it will be interesting to see what issues are most important for the Iranian voters. The economic crisis is the main concern. As of 2022, some 60% of Iranians were reportedly living at or below the poverty line. The morality police also returned to the streets of Iran this year. So we look uh, set to see further repression in Iran particularly uh,
1: awful men. Will Christou and Lebanon and Syria. Yeah, so unfortunately, I don't have good news, Hugo. Um, I'll start with Syria. Syria, since the start of the Ukraine war in 2022, has suffered from a big problem, which is donor fatigue. Uh, Much of of Syria's population, uh, over 90%, live in poverty, and they rely on... um, aid from organizations like the World Food Program and other bodies in the UN to sustain their daily lives. Now, more and more donors are forgetting about Syria and focusing on other conflicts, and this has resulted in a huge drawdown in funds for a country that still needs it in a big way. We heard a few weeks ago that the World Food Program is cutting its largest uh, food assistance program in Syria, which is going to affect some 12 million people in the country. So we're likely going to see worsened living conditions in the country and a worsened economy as the entire region suffers from the Israel-Gaza war. Now, more than that, on the political track, um, unless... Assad seriously changes his behavior, we're we're most likely going to see continued stalled uh, efforts in the normalization process in the region. Uh, It was at first optimistic from countries like Saudi Arabia and Jordan that Assad could become an ally and a a more rational actor within the context of the region. But he since hasn't taken a single step towards reform. So unless that changes, we'll likely see more of the same when it comes to a stalled normalization process. Now, as for Lebanon, the big question right now is will Israel and Hezbollah be drawn into a larger war? Until now, there's been an exchange of uh, rocket fire daily, which has been intensifying. But as of yet, no war between Israel and Hezbollah. This might change. Israel has been threatening that if Hezbollah does not withdraw uh, to north of the Latani River in in, uh, Lebanon as Resolution 1701, which um, ended the 2006 war between the two countries uh, stipulates it should then it would remove hezbollah by force so right now what's happening is diplomats are descending on beirut and tel aviv trying to negotiate between israel and hezbollah to see if they can prevent a war between the two countries now in the meantime we don't know how long this is going to take even if it does it doesn't expand into a war If the current situation goes on for months, it could severely impact Lebanon's economy and we could see a renewed, even worse, economic crisis in Lebanon as the shortage of foreign exchange in the country gets even worse.
2: Oliver Mizzi and Egypt. I'd say the most immediate thing to expect... uh, right now from the get-go is how Egypt is going to and is handling the ongoing war in Gaza and the humanitarian fallout from that. Um, Of course, we don't really know the extent to which Egypt will be caught up in both the humanitarian effort to help Gazans, uh, nor the state's ability to help craft a political solution uh, for the enclave. Um, But bordering Gaza will mean that Egypt will have to get involved at some level. Uh, one such scenario that has been sort of playing on the minds of a lot of people is that, um, although we can't say this will happen for sure, uh, is that Gaza's 2.3 million people will be forced by Israel into Egypt's Sinai province. And this is something that has been said by uh, Israeli officials quite a lot since the start of the conflict, mm. um, which will basically mean that Egypt will have to manage 2.3 million people in, in the Sinai desert. Um, and given that Egypt is uh, economically uh, not doing so well and uh, Egypt's government isn't exactly the most efficient government, uh, it's going to be a struggle for, for the Egyptian government to do such a thing. And it's quite likely that they'll need Gulf and Western help, uh, particularly financial help as well. And then there's also the aftermath of the election to consider. CC um, will more than likely win. Uh, no. Yeah, I know. It's pretty crazy. Um, and as a result... Um, There's a lot of speculation that the pound will immediately devalue after the election, um, which is not good for a a country that's already suffering from quite a bit of inflation, and it's likely to make economic matters worse uh, for ordinary people. And then talking about the economic situation, Egypt still will likely have to rely on the IMF and uh, Gulf states to shore up their foreign currency reserves, you know, it's going to still, uh, you know, uh, add to its uh, debt settled economy, you know, spending on all these mega projects, which has been doing as well. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, international credit agencies like Moody's, for instance, um, have already down downgraded the credit rating uh, of, of the country uh, numerous occasions over the last year or so. Um, so even the debt is likely to be uh, quite uh, quite a steep cost for Egypt.
6: Benjamin Ashraf, and the Gulf? Well, like so many things happening in the region at the moment, so much of it is contingent on the war in Gaza. Um, for the Gulf, that will be mainly how they react to the war, how their relationship with Israel will change um, as we come into 2024. We must remember that before October the 7th, there was talk that Saudi Arabia may normalise relations with Israel. Next year, it's, it's likely we'll probably get a clearer answer about how that will progress or not. Also, people will be looking at the UAE and Bahrain to see how they will handle their relationship with Israel and um, how their governments will put, handle popular internal support for Palestine. And uh, economically 2024 could be, could be interesting as major oil economies like Saudi Arabia and the UAE will look for a path away from a complete reliance on ourselves. In 2024, we'll also see the UAE and Saudi Arabia join the BRICS block of developing nations, which includes Russia and China. And, um, yeah, we'll send a pretty clear message to the U.S. and their influence in the region.
4: Israel with Qasem Wadi. Well, it is uncertain how the political scene in Israel will change in 2024. However, Netanyahu seems to be losing all chances all chances to continue leading the state. Uh, latest polls show that the head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, has the highest approval uh, of rates. The political future Netanyahu will be decided, frankly, by the way the current war will end the nature of the next government coalition isn't likely to change much as far-right and ultra-nationalist parties continue to have the highest approval. Ministers like Ben Veer and Smotrich uh, could effectively take advantage of, of an end or downfall of Netanyahu's leadership um, uh, and uh, take over, basically, the some of them uh, take over the leadership of the Israeli right-wing. Well, this means that the settlement expansion will continue to be at uh, top of priorities for any coming Israeli government, and um, uh, also the increasing crackdown on Palestinian prisoners, which is also a personal issue for Ben if he continues in in in power. Uh, Palestinians fear that whatever government comes after Netanyahu, it will increase its rates in the north of the West Bank, especially Jenin and Nablus, where it's already um, it's already happening. Um, Uh, or even launch a full-fetched offensive against West Bank cities, which Israeli politicians, including Netanyahu and some of his allies, have been talking about for for almost two years. In the meanwhile, Netanyahu will most probably continue to prolong the war in Gaza, weeks or even months, into 2024, in order to avoid his own downfall. And it it all depends on on the degree of political pressure coming from the U.S. and, and Europe, especially.
0: And finally the UFO and Palestine?
4: Um, there
5: are no signs that Israel has any intentions to end its war in Gaza anytime soon. They vowed to completely annihilate Hamas, and that means millions of civilian lives are still in danger in Gaza. The destruction to all levels of infrastructure further heightens the danger for civilians. And... Um, I mean, 2024 is looking extremely bleak for the Gaza Strip. The infrastructure has been destroyed, as we've said. So there's no water, there's no electricity. Roads are completely destroyed or damaged. Uh, Hospitals cannot treat patients and diseases are quickly spreading across the territory, um, especially with many bodies still trapped beneath the rubble. But what's more worrying in the long run, other than the continued bombardment of Gaza and the killings is the concern that Palestinians who have already been displaced from their homes will be subject to yet another ethnic cleansing and transferred out of Gaza altogether, uh, most likely to the Sina Desert in Egypt. And we've heard a lot of this in recent weeks, Um, countries like Egypt and Jordan, which neighbour Israel and the Palestinian territories have issued stern warnings. Jordan has gone as far as to say that any Israeli plan to displace the Palestinians and send them abroad would be a declaration of war. Uh, Egypt has also reportedly threatened to cut ties with Israel if the Palestinians are pushed into Sina. So Egypt feels that Israel is creating a sort of reality where Egypt will have to open its border with the Gaza Strip and let all these Palestinians in because these Palestinians are being pushed further and further south towards Rafah, which is the only land crossing between uh, Gaza and any other country, which is is Egypt. In the West Bank for next year, I mean, there's the likely chance that settler violence will continue to rise, um, as we've seen happen in the past two years. Even more concerning is the prospect of Netanyahu opening a second front in the occupied territory. Um, He recently um, made comments, um, according to reports, where he mused about the possibility of going up against the Palestinian Authority security forces in the West Bank. Um, So we could see two fronts. So we have Gaza and then we have the West Bank and then we also have Israel's front um, in the north with, uh, with Lebanon, where they've been engaged in cross-border clashes with Hezbollah. Um, but the fallout from the October 7th attack means that there's more than a chance that next year will prove to be a very rocky political year for Netanyahu that could risk his position in office altogether.
0: 2023 started with deadly pogroms in the West Bank and a devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. It ended with genocide in Gaza. 2024 looks set to start with genocide, and the region will have to reckon with this tragedy, and they will have to react how they see fit. How will they react? That's something that only regional leaders know at this point. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they're still formulating a long-term response. Either way, the new Arab voice will be here, to let you know what happens and what it all means. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich, with additional help from Kasamwadi, Shahla Omar, Will Christou, Louay Faor, Oliver Mizzi, Dana Garib and Benjamin Ashraf. Our theme music was by Omar El-Phil. This is our final episode of the year, but we will be back next year in 2024. In the meantime, we'd like to thank everybody who has listened to any of our programmes. Your support really does mean a lot. While you wait for new episodes, you can go back and find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. And from all of us here at the New Arab Voice, we wish you a happy Christmas, a happy holidays and a happy new
5: year.